Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Well, let's pray. Lord, thanks again for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness to your church. For many, many years now throughout history, thank you for your faithfulness to this church, Lord, would you be faithful today to us in your word? Show us yourself, show us your goodness, show us your nearness, show us your sovereignty. Lord, build up your church that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we start, I know there's a big game today, and just so it's not a distraction while I preach, I promise we will get you out of here by 430. So you can just settle in and know we're going to be okay. Um, man, as I was studying this week, trying to, again, in a place where we're in a, this is a pretty nice sanctuary, probably a lot of people are going to parties, it's sometimes hard to put ourselves in the place of this church in Smyrna uh, that would have been suffering in ways that many of our brothers and sisters around the world are suffering today, but it's hard for us to climb into that, that space. And so that, as I was studying Smyrna, I was going back and reading about this guy named Polycarp, and he was a, a bishop at Smyrna around this time. He was a good friend and disciple of John who received this vision that we're studying together. Polycarp uh, lived a long life, a faithful life as a bishop here in Smyrna in this suffering church. He endured trial for the sake of the kingdom of Jesus. And most of you know that Polycarp's life ended in martyrdom. So you have this idea of witness in Revelation. It's kind of the dual meaning of of testifying and probably dying for the sake of Jesus. And Polycarp would have been one of the first really famous martyrs. Uh, his, His martyrdom was kind of heard all around. And so Polycarp, when he was asked to recant uh, before, his, uh, before his being killed by the authorities, here's how he responded. Just get, put yourself in this mindset of this little suffering church in Smyrna that he was a bishop of. He said, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior. And so as we're looking at this little church, what we should be asking is like, what does Jesus do? What does he say? What does he promise that can help someone answer like that (laughs) in the face of uh, impending near death for the sake of the name of Jesus? And this, this text gives us some good answers. Jesus wants the church to hold fast to him and endure throughout tribulation. Jesus was writing this letter to this little suffering church in Smyrna just for moments like that. And what we'll see about the care of Jesus for his church is that he takes it upon himself to help the church endure by his power. I was just amazed again this week by the nearness of the all-powerful Christ. He is near to these churches in their time of need. He has burning eyes that see all things, and he walks among his churches. He knows their unique struggles and temptations and trials and faithfulness. He encourages and exhorts. And Jesus knows South City's church. 
He knows us. He's among us. He has burning eyes to see what's happening here. The good and the struggle and the sin and the rejoicing. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's here with us to restore us and reorient us and redeem us and reconcile broken situations. And then notice, just don't want to lose this as we go through these letters, Jesus speaks directly to them. He's that invested. (laughs) He is all in for these churches. And he speaks directly to us. And what does he call them to do over and over again in these seven letters? Trust in him. Endure in him. Conquer in him. Find eternal life in him. And so the reason we can be sturdy, the way someone can answer like Polycarp did near his death, is that they know Jesus is near and that our strength is not found in ourselves or in our circumstances, but in our Savior. Do you know that today? Do you have this sturdy foundation today? Rather, Jesus is near and speaks uniquely and directly to each church and each person in each church to call us to endurance from weariness and worry and trial and temptation in him. So as we hear today, We should listen as if Jesus is speaking directly to us and is right here in the midst of us to call us closer to him because he is. Because he is. If Revelation is going to do something over and over again, it's just going to hold up. Here's what's real. Here's what's more real than what you feel and see day in and day out. Will you believe it? Will you trust him? So let's dive in here. And first we'll see in verse 8 the sovereignty of the Savior. But before we just get to the text, it's helpful to know a little something about this city as we dive in. So Smyrna was another port city that was actually said to be built up like a crown around a large mountain. Commerce made it a generally pretty wealthy city. Most people did well there, and it was full of various large structures. It was one of the the first major cities that had a bunch of entertainment in the area. It had a gymnasium. It had a stadium. It had a theater. It had a library. It had massive temples to various gods, and also one or two dedicated to the emperor. And these stadiums were big enough to hold like 15, 20,000 people. So the, the wealth produced all this kind of commerce, produced all this entertainment. The imperial cult was a large part of Asia Minor in general, but perhaps even more so in Smyrna with the city competing and winning several times to build several massive temples to various emperors. And in the midst of this sprawling city of Roman affluence and power and worship and entertainment and leisure and comfort was a little suffering church. Smyrna, this little church. And it's interesting, this church receives only commendation and encouragement with no correction or exhortation. This church and the sixth church, Philadelphia, receive only commendation and encouragement. They are described as having little power and being poor, and yet are the two without any rebuke. Which just tells us the the upside down world of the Bible, right? You're not commended for your power or your riches or your success or your comfort. You're You're commended for being faithful as you're poor and powerless and weak and thought little of here in the midst of this sprawling city. Which is probably, 
Probably a little bit of a a backhanded warning to a place like South City's Church in Lakeville. (laughs) Be careful what we value. Be careful how we measure success. Be careful how we measure faithfulness to Jesus and in our lives when we know the temptation of power and riches and comfort to corrupt and distract. You'll remember that I said last week that the description of Jesus to each unique church is meant to give them unique and tailored comfort for their situation and their reality at the time. So what does Jesus say to Smyrna about who he is? We'll look at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I think about this small, struggling, poor, impoverished church and think this sprawling city of Smyrna would have felt very big, (laughs) would have felt very massive, would have felt very strong. The struggling, persecuted church would have felt the weight of the crown of the empire even as they lived in a city that looked like a massive crown of Rome, just reminding them of how small and insignificant they felt. It would have felt like Rome had always been and always would be and would soon come for them and crush them under its power. And so Jesus gives them an encouragement tailor-made for them. Jesus is the first and the last. Rome will come and go, but he is the one who has always been and will always be. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the creator. In fact, in the Old Testament, this phrase first and last is always used of Yahweh, God. Jesus is God. The one they are suffering for is God. There are multiple Old Testament places that refer to this, but listen to how Isaiah 41, 2-4 reads, in light of a massive empire and a need to remember a bigger God. Here's what it says. It says, he gives up nations before him. He tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. In other words, the power and presence and persistence of Rome or any other nation or king or empire or power cannot compare to the power and presence and persistence of Jesus. It's the message to this little struggling church. Nations stand And nations fall at his pleasure. Nations stand and fall because Jesus says they can. Mighty kings are nothing compared to him. They can be like dust in just a moment. And this is the one who walks among the people at Smyrna. He's saying, I'm your God. I'm your Savior. Here I am. In other words, kids, Jesus is trying to tell his church, I'm bigger. I'm stronger And I will last longer than anyone that might try to make you suffer. And so kids, you can always know that Jesus is bigger and he's stronger and he lasts longer than any hard thing you are going through. You can trust him, South City's church. Jesus is bigger and stronger and will last longer than any political or cultural reality if you find yourself looking out there mainly filled with anxiety and worry, frustration, concern. Jesus is bigger and stronger and will last longer than any of these things that he's allowed to stand or will make to fall. But it's not 
the only encouragement. He also says that he died and came to life. Remember, conquering in Revelation, even with this big, mighty God, who's the first and the last, is through endurance and tribulation for the sake of the kingdom. That's what conquering looks like over and over again in Revelation. It's not more comfort. He doesn't say to Smyrna, hey, you're poor. I'm going to give you money. (laughs) You're weak. I'm going to give you influence. You feel insignificant? I'm going to let everyone know how significant you are. That's not what he says. That's not what it looks like in Revelation. In Revelation, it's endurance through tribulation for the sake of the kingdom. That's what conquering looks like. Not more comfort or power or ease or popularity. Persecution was becoming more widespread and serious and certainly here in Smyrna. And some people in the church in Smyrna would soon have to decide not only if Jesus was worth living for, which everyone in this room has to decide day in and day out, but they would also have to soon decide, is he worth dying for? Is he worth dying for? If they weren't willing to worship other gods, particularly the imperial cult god of the emperors. And here Jesus reminds them, not only is he completely sovereign, but in his sovereignty for this suffering church, he says, I chose to suffer. I know you're suffering. They will suffer, and he knows suffering. He died because he loved them and wanted to free them from their sins by his blood. He died to win a people, and now he walks with that people and is a merciful high priest in their suffering because he knows suffering. (laughs) He's, He's been rejected. He's been alienated. He's been persecuted. He's gone to the point of death. The sovereign king is a suffering savior. Isn't it encouraging in your suffering, in persecution, to know that the one who walks with you and cares for you and is sovereign and sustains you knows what you're going through? Not far off. He's not unaware. He knows. (laughs) He knows. He's acquainted with grief. He's acquainted with alienation. And he didn't just die. He's alive, right? Our Savior is alive. He's conquered death. If he would have stayed dead, we wouldn't be here. We'd be hopeless. Let's we just follow him right to a quick death. That's not something to get behind. But they knew he had conquered death and therefore was alive to redeem and to reign and to keep his people. He knew suffering and he conquered death. That's the kind of king you want on your side. In all of suffering persecution or just normal suffering, normal brokenness of life whispers to us the whisper of death. Like I'm convinced more and more that the reason suffering stinks so much and hurts so much is just reminds us of death. Death is coming. Suffering wears us thin and steals our time and wears us out and reminds us life is short and death is coming. It's why there's industries devoted to trying to stay young, right? It's why when you lose time in suffering, you feel like everything's being taken away because you know death is coming. You're reminded of your frailty and your fragility and your finiteness. And how much more is this true if you're suffering unjustly? But some of you are suffering from simple brokenness in this world. Some of you are experiencing some measure of suffering for the sake of the name, even if it's less extreme than prison or death. For all of us, the message here is Jesus suffered for us, but he's alive to conquer death, and therefore all of this suffering in Smyrna and its south cities 
is not meaningless stealing of time and life, but purposeful leading to eternal life. Our Savior, sovereign, suffered for us, saved us, and has overcome death, and therefore his church stands. His church remains. Point number two, suffering under Satan. Verses nine and the beginning of verse 10. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, I don't know about you, but if most people came up to me and said, listen, you're about to get tested and thrown into prison, but don't worry about it. That wouldn't land on me <laughs> that way. I wouldn't say, oh, that sounds good. But here he is. He's talking to them. He knows them. He's among them. He knows their trials, their poverty, and that they're being slandered. So what's happening here? What's the background in Smyrna? We already talked about some of it. First, to abstain from the imperial cult worship would have led to all sorts of economic and social alienation. You wouldn't just have had access to things and people and places if you weren't a part of it. Second, what's going on here with this synagogue of Satan is that Judaism at the time had negotiated a kind of peace deal with Rome. They would often bring sacrifices to the imperial cult, but they didn't require them to make them as if they were sacrificing to a god, simply a sign of honor. And so it was a kind of a brokered peace deal for both groups, right? It was supposed to work for both. The Jewish synagogues would avoid struggle and alienation and poverty, and the Roman Empire would avoid any more of those skirmishes with those little religious groups on the fringes. It was usually an edgy relationship, but one that tried to be maintained. If you read through Acts, you'll see certain Jewish people chasing Paul from city to city to get him in trouble with the local arms of Rome. And this is like that, only more widespread. The Jews hated Christians. Christians claimed their Messiah, but said, uh, you Jews missed him. <laughs> claimed him and you missed him. Right? They claimed Jesus was the promised Savior, but that salvation was by grace through faith alone and not from any religious system of the synagogue, especially circumcision. And so these Jews didn't like them and didn't like what they were saying and didn't believe them and thought they were heretics. And they were likely part of spreading rumors about Christians that Christians were atheists and cannibals and political problems. Atheists because they would only worship Jesus instead of all the plural gods of Rome. So Christians used to be called atheists in the early church. Cannibals, because Christians celebrated the Lord's Supper and that was misunderstood. Read John 6 and you'll see why. And political problems, because they declared Jesus is Lord. When you're supposed to say the emperor is Lord. And all that to say, we don't live quite in that kind of culture, but if we're following Jesus, if we're trying to be faithful to Jesus, the world will probably think we're strange too. Slander may come as we follow Jesus and our morality looks backwards to those around us. Slander may come as we don't bow to the cultural gods of self and sexual immorality. And my prayer for us is not that we'd be kind of cloistered, getting all angry and, and anxious about all those things, but hopefully that we'd be a church 
that leads the way in a kind of strange, faithful mix of love for God and others that abstains from what's evil and destructive. We know it's going to kill you and bring you to hell and holds fast and works for what is good in seeking the dignity, worth, and true flourishing of all humans of every race and gender and economic situation that leads to a countercultural life that the world simply doesn't understand. That the world wouldn't know what to do with us because we don't fit in with any cultural or political whim or system. We just follow Jesus and love him and love others as ourselves. And so that's what's going on. There's this general uh, persecution happening and then these Jews in this synagogue are slandering about these Christians, bringing more charges. And so here's what Jesus says even about a synagogue, even about a synagogue for those who will persecute those who call him Lord. He says it's a synagogue of Satan. That is a strong term, (laughs) synagogue of Satan. Jesus says this synagogue is a temple of Satan disguised as a place of worship of the true God. And Satan himself is soon going to use their slander to get some of these Christians thrown in jail. Now the text says, 10 days of intense suffering is coming. It could be a literal 10 days. Some authors and commentators think it's a literal 10 days. Or it could be, and I think more likely, this is the background of Daniel 1 coming to encourage these believers about who their God is. So let me remind you of Daniel chapter 1. In Daniel 1, the people of Judah had been exiled to Babylon. So they're in a a foreign place, a foreign place with riches and comfort and wealth. And they're all there by themselves. And Daniel and three of his counterparts are taken into the king's palace to be brought up and educated. They're going to get lessons. They're going to be brought up in this culture. And part of that was to eat what the king ate and drank what he drank, right? Drink what he drank, not drank what he drank. That's Southern or something that I'm not. But drink what he drank. And so as they're there, they realize they can't do this. Likely because the food involved was probably sacrificed to idols. And so they couldn't do it. They couldn't be a part of this idol worship going on in the palace. And so they ask, hey, for 10 days, can we not partake of it and eat only vegetables? And the Lord sustains them through that test. He's with them. And later on, similar language about the fiery furnace. He's with them and walks with them through these trials. In other words, that's the backdrop here to Smyrna. He's saying, listen, Smyrna, even though you're home, you're in exile. Even though you're home, this isn't your home. Even though you're living where you've always lived, you're not really a a member of this community anymore. You're a stranger and an alien. You won't partake in this cult. You're being slandered and made out to be trouble. Suffering is coming. But just like God sustained them through that test, so will he sustain you as he does for his people throughout all generations. And third, it's important to note that this is a test. It's a test. And that test is coming from God with purpose. So though Satan really does hate them, and the Jews really do hate them and slander them, Jesus is saying, this is still under my sovereign control to test you. 
The people would have remembered the story of Job and God allowing Job or Satan to test Job or listen to the words of Peter to the various churches who are also undergoing persecution. Here's what he says in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 to 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the trials come in various ways and places, but all are under the sovereign control of God. All will be used, not as some kind of hammer, to smash our faith. So if you're going through a trial right now, if you're going through persecution right now, if people are alienating you, don't like you, saying things about you because of the name of Jesus... God's not going to use that as a hammer to smash our faith, but in the perfect hands of our Father, the perfect, kind physician, he will use them to test and refine and strengthen our faith into the kind that will make it to the very end. We don't go looking for these things. We're not masochists. But as they come, we know they're under his control, and Jesus has walked this path before us so we can trust him. There's two quick thoughts about this second point of Suffering Number one, needs to be said, I think, because here is a religious place doing Satan's work. Let's make sure we're not doing Satan's work under the veil of church. It's really important. We should not slander or speak poorly about or become an accuser of our brothers or sisters here at South City's Church. It is easy to veil accusations in religion. Kids, we want to make sure we don't talk poorly about others when they're not around in our church. We should talk to them and love them and not do Satan's work under the veil of church. And second, in a culture like ours with many gods and altars other than Jesus, we should expect suffering and slander for following Jesus. Following Jesus will cost us, probably not persecution or prison or death yet for us, though it is for many of our brothers and sisters worldwide, but relational cost or vocational cost or feeling like a stranger in your family or your workplace or your neighborhood. While we're not called to seek out suffering, are there areas you can see the cost in life for following him? We were talking, actually I think we were, I think it was on the, the podcast that we do about the sermon every week that Pastor Daniel just asked a question of us in that little room, and I thought, that's a good question. He said, can you see cost in your life because people know you're for Jesus? Can, can you see cost in your life because people know you're for Jesus? In other words, are you so for Jesus enough people know who you are and what you're about that once in a while there's a little, uh, a little cost that you feel? And he had, the next question he asked is, should that be normal? And I think what's implied here is, yeah. <laughs> That's what it means to follow Jesus. And so if we look around at our lives and we go, there's no cost, then we might have other questions to ask ourselves, right? There might be other things we had to say, why? Why isn't there cost? Do those in your spheres of influence know your trust and love for the name of Jesus? See your passion for who he is, for holiness in his name? See your love for strangers? See your love for the downtrodden and the outcast? And go, who are you? You don't make sense. Kids, sometimes following Jesus means people might say you're foolish or strange or there might be things you don't get to do that other people get to do around you. 
But Jesus has had people say all those things about him over and over again. And he knows you and he'll be with you. Last point here, sustained unto salvation. Notice the words of Jesus at the beginning of verse 10. He says, fear not. And as we read about Jesus, it just seems like he's always saying that to us, which I think is because we're very afraid. I think this is loving. I don't think you should receive Jesus' fear nots as a condemnation, like stop being afraid, dummies. Right? Stop being afraid, fools. Stop being afraid. I think you should receive it like, hey, I, I know you're going to be afraid. I know you're going to be afraid. This, this world, in this world you'll have trouble. <laughs> Take heart, I've overcome the world. Right? Let, your, let my strength be made perfect in your weakness. I'm not going to break a bruised reed. I'm not going to put out a smoldering weak. I'm going to be your good shepherd. I'm going to walk through the valley with you. But I'm going to anoint your head with oil in the presence of your enemies. Surely my goodness and mercy is going to follow you all the days of your life. He's talking to you like, don't be afraid, even though I know it's scary. <laughs> don't be afraid because I'm here. That's why he's always saying it, because he knows it's scary. So here's what he says to this powerless, poor, persecuted little church. He says, they're rich and fear not them. Well, how? Well, in the end, it's just a simple heavenly math. Eternity is longer than not eternity. (laughs) That's the math here. (laughs) It's the logic here. Eternity is longer than not eternity. Here's what he says in verse 10 to the end here. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Here's what I said is the the essence of Revelation in the first sermon I preached on it. I said, Satan will work through many beastly people and political powers to persecute God's people, but he cannot ultimately win. Jesus reigns now. Jesus keeps now. Jesus rules now. And the choice is clear. Find salvation in the things of this world temporarily and suffer the ultimate wrath of the Lamb eternally. Or find salvation in Jesus eternally and suffer the wrath of the world and the dragon temporarily. That's the choice. It's math. Eternity is longer than not eternity. And so Smyrna need not fear pain or persecution or poverty because they will be made whole, safe, and rich, not just in this life, but forever in Jesus. That's the promise. Set your eyes on things above, not on earthly things, right? Look up. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. That's the call of the Bible. Don't look at all that's here and going on and the suffering and the circumstances and think this is most real. Look up and look longer and say, that's what's most real. I want to do what matters for the next 10,000 years, not for the next 10 minutes. That's the call of faithfulness to the church. Even in death, The last enemy, the hardest thing, they will be given the crown of life in a city that looks like a massive crown of Rome that will kill them and like Rome will never end. Jesus says, no, no, no. In me, I give you the crown of life and I never end. And you're going to be with me forever. They will reign with Jesus in life, having walked through suffering and death for his name. Revelation 20, verse 6, pictures those who have been persecuted and even killed for the sake of Jesus. 
And it says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. So how do you not fear, but remain faithful when you feel pain and persecution and poverty for Jesus in this life? I think the answer is that you remember that Jesus had died and rose again to conquer death so that even if 80 years of suffering in this life is your reality, it is a drop in the bucket compared to oceans of joy and glory coming with Jesus in eternity. So you keep loving him. You keep loving each other. You keep loving your enemies no matter what comes because that's so much longer than this little thing that feels so real. Listen to some of Polycarp's final words. It says, history has it. Uh, he, they brought him before the ruler, and the ruler's like, I'm going to send the animals on you. And Polycarp's like, send your animals, right? And then they says, fine, if you're not going to, you don't like the animals, the animals don't scare you, I'm going I'm to burn you. And here's what he says. In light of this text in Revelation, this little city he was a bishop in, he says to this ruler, a bunch of people around watching, he says, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. One more time. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Eternity is longer than not eternity. That's the logic. Jesus is better. I want him for all of life and for all of eternal life more than I want anything else. And so bring on what you want. Polycarp knew his Savior walked with his church. His Savior was the first and the last. He died and rose again. He promised Polycarp a crown of life if you would just trust Jesus and endure through tribulation for the sake of the kingdom. And so Polycarp followed his Savior, choosing the name of Jesus knowing that through him, even in pain and poverty now, he would be rich and reigning forever. And so it is with all who trust in Jesus and endure tribulation for the sake of the kingdom. He's the first and the last. He died and rose again. He's with us. He walks among us. He promises us a crown of life so that we will rule and reign with him far longer than any pain or suffering. The sufferings of this life are not worth being compared to the glory that will come. Let's pray. So Lord, we want to trust you. We want to trust you in suffering. We want to trust you with our lives. We want to trust you in life and in death. We want to trust you Lord, in a culture that values a lot of things that you say are evil, Lord, we want to trust you enough to see in our own hearts where we value things that are evil. Lord, we want to repent and we want to love you more and be refined and restored. And Lord, in all this, Lord, as, as we walk through this life with sufferings and struggles and sins and brokenness, Lord, our great desire, Lord, is that you would be glorified in our lives that you would refine us and reorient us and redeem us and, Lord, continue your work in us that others might see 
that you're worthy, that you're really as good and true and beautiful as you say you are. And Lord, we know that there's some in this room going through massive suffering. Lord, you promise to be near them and with them, and if they endure through trial for the sake of the kingdom, Lord, you will give them the crown of life. There are some in here who, Lord, maybe... Lord, maybe they are experiencing broken relationships or alienation or um, lack of ability to to influence or lack of power or lack of, Lord, uh, vocational influence, Lord, because they name the name of Jesus. Or maybe their neighbors look at them funny. Maybe their family members look at them funny. Lord, I know of so many kids in schools where their classmates look at them funny because of the things that they do and don't do and because of this person named Jesus that they follow. And Lord, I pray right now, Lord, be with them. And Lord, would you be with us in such a way that you don't make us, that we wouldn't become an angry, shouting, fearful frustrated place but be with us in such a way that there's such rest in Jesus that you're with us that we're rich in you that forever that eternity is longer than not eternity that we have all we need and we will forever that we have the the crown of life that the second death won't hurt us that we'll eat from the the tree of life forever Lord give us such rest and peace in that that we are a happy loving caring self-giving people that wants more than anything else to draw near to you and see others draw near to you. Make us weird that way. Make us not fit any particular category except to people who are trying hard to follow Jesus. So we need your help. We need your spirit now. So as we come to eat and drink with you, Lord, help us lay down our fears. Help us lay down our sins. Help us lay down our frustrations. Help us lay down our bitterness. Lord, help us lay down any slander we've been guilty of ourselves and bring it all to the foot of the cross, Lord. Refine us and renew us, Lord. Let us hear by your spirit what you're saying to the church. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.